Hey y'all, this is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week, the war on terror, 20 years later. All right, let's start the show. Gosh, how many years now have you been covering terror, national security? What would you Terrorism. call the beat? Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually since, um, um, for 20 years now. Huh. Um, after September 11th, yeah, my whole career in covering the so-called world of jihad started with the attacks on 9-11, 2001. This is Suad McKinnett. On September 11th, 2001, Suad was actually in Germany. She had just graduated from journalism school in Hamburg. So I was actually listening to the lecture of my professor when my family started calling me and calling me and calling me. And so when I got out during the break and then they told me, come home, come home now, um, something bad has happened. To you, though, at this early stage, we believe that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. As it turned out, a few days later, three of the four so-called 9-11 pilots used to live in Hamburg and study in Hamburg, Germany. During the same period of time when I was in Hamburg, Germany, attending journalism school. So um, huh. now being a young journalist, um, and being a woman and a Muslim woman, when you learn that three of the so-called 9-11 pilots used to live in the same city where I lived mm. and had turned into mass murders mm. um, and used the religion that I believe in mm. as a justification, I felt a huge responsibility to figure out what happened there. What happened that those guys who could have taken a totally different path in their lives, right? Who came as students to Germany. What happened to them that they turned into these murderers? You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders, and this week we are remembering 9-11. It is almost cliche to say at this point, but 20 years later, it doesn't make it any less true. September 11th changed everything. In the immediate aftermath, for Americans, it meant unspeakable tragedy. If you were old enough to remember it, you never forgot where you were when it happened. I was a senior in high school in South Texas at marching band practice on a big asphalt parking lot when I heard about the attacks. I remember perfect Texas fall weather, and I also recall everything coming to a standstill after that. My teachers scrapped their lesson plans for weeks so we all could just watch the news coverage in class and process and grieve together. Hold on just a moment. We've got an explosion inside. September 11th meant the deaths of thousands on a single day in New York, Washington, D.C., and Pennsylvania. And for years, it meant two long, drawn-out wars and more deaths. Tens of thousands for American troops, Iraqis, and Afghans. The Battle of Iraq is one victory in a war on terror that began on September the 11th, 2001, and still goes on. And it means some other things that, that can't be counted. The way we travel changed. How we think of security, that changed too. And the list goes on. How we think of privacy, other people's basic rights and how we consider America's very place in the world. The war on terror is not over, yet it is not endless. 
We do not know the day of final victory, but we have seen the turning of the tide. No act of the terrorist will change our purpose or weaken our resolve or alter their fate. Their cause is lost. Free nations will press on to victory. You know, 20 years after the attacks of 9-11, I have been thinking a lot about the so-called war on terror it started. And whether that war ever ended or was ever actually won or lost. And you know, watching America's withdrawal from Afghanistan these last few weeks, it seems that war has left America and a lot of the rest of the world in a place similar to how it all began. Chaos. So I called up Suad McKinnett to talk all this through. What the war on terror achieved, if anything, and what lessons to take from it. She's one to know. After all, she has been covering this since the very beginning. For the victims also yeah. and their families. And here you are still covering this stuff 20 years later. Did you expect the aftermath of those attacks to be so present still 20 years later? Back then, um, the longer I covered it and the more incidences happened, like the, especially when the war in Iraq happened, when the war in Iraq happened, I knew that this is going to be something that I would have to cover for a very, very long time. Mm. Now, we are here we are 20 years later, and we just saw what happened in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And I must say, I was hoping I would not have to say it, but I'm afraid we are going to have to cover this for the next 20 years as well. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I hear you when you say that. I I mean, I'm just thinking these last few weeks of what the Biden administration has been doing. They're doing this evacuation, but then there are these attacks. And he echoes the words of George W. Bush from 20 years ago saying, we will hunt you down again today in 2021. We will not forgive. We will not forget. We will hunt you down and make you pay. So the, the, while politicians often like to use phrases and, um, and like to say uh, we ended the war and we ended the longest war, right? And we see all these titles and that it's not for one side to decide that the war has ended. That's mm. to begin with. And we all have to think about that yeah. because, you know, 20 years after 9-11, have we succeeded, we in the West to win over the hearts and minds of those people, or have we not? What do you think is the answer to that question? I would say we have not. You know, as we mark this 20th anniversary of the attacks on 9-11, and also the 20th anniversary, or getting close to it, of the war on terror itself, is there any fact or figure or number that can in some way put all of it and the magnitude of it into perspective for our listeners? Is there, in, is there any way to quantify the size of this war? I would say we have to look at the countries that were involved to a certain extent or implicated. Mm. So yes, in the U.S., we have to look at the victims on 9-11. But then also 
to just think about how many attacks we have had. After 9-11, this terrorism has cost the lives of so many people all over the world. Yeah. And I mean, just to remind ourselves, this was not a crusade. I mean, this is actually the one word that back then when I heard it, uh, scared me. Really? Yes, it scared me. It scared me a lot because it, it, you know, some people would not understand that this is not about Muslims against non-Muslims. Mm. This is about some people who happen to be Muslims and who believe in an extremist ideology against all the others who do not support their ideology. And so the victims um, were all over the world. Well, and I think for Americans, I think it's easy to not see all of that. I think so much of the way that America conceptualizes what has become this war on terror, we conceptualize it a little bit myopically. And it's America-centric. And there are references to the American lives lost and then maybe the lives lost from people native to Afghanistan or Iraq. But there's not this conversation about how global this thing was. And hearing you talk about it, it underscores that this was a thing that was happening all across the world for the last 20 years. All across the world. Yeah, and this is going to be a big conflict between the people who want to be bridge builders. And it doesn't matter what religious background they have or if they have a religious background or not. And those who want to divide us. And um, because... I saw also how in some of the Western countries, um, far-right extremist groups used the playbooks of um, some jihadist groups to basically use the other side's mistakes for their propaganda. And to mm. a certain mm. extent, both sides, all these extremist sides need one another because mm. some of these neo-Nazi uh, extremist groups are using, of course, the attacks that are conducted by some of the Al-Qaeda or ISIS groups in order to scare yeah. people in, you know, in Europe and in, in, in the West to say, and this is why you need to become part of our yeah. movement. Yeah. One thing I keep thinking about at this 20-year mark is one big unanswered question just for me as a journalist and an observer of this stuff is has America figured out how big it wants to be in the world you know does it want to be this nation that builds other nations across the globe and spreads quote-unquote democracy across the globe or does it want to be a country with a smaller footprint that leaves places like Afghanistan how big does America want to be? And I don't think anyone in leadership has answered that question yet or tried to. And I don't think most Americans really have a full answer to that question yet either. So I think the question also is how big um, America has to be. Mm. And um, but also what does it mean? What in the future of U.S. foreign policy is the goal that um, was the goal in the past, which was we go out there and spread democracy. That hasn't worked out very well, as we see. Mm. Unfortunately, 
the way we live in such a globalized world. And while it's uh, clear that, especially in Afghanistan, what happened in the past 20 years has not worked out very well, and uh, while there, this last government and the past governments in Afghanistan will have to answer a lot of questions about where money went and um, and and how all of this happened. Um, this country, this nation has to understand the way it goes in this world is wherever the U.S. is getting out or leaving, somebody else is getting in. Thanks again to Suad McKinnett. She's a national security correspondent at The Washington Post. She's also the author of a book called I Was Told to Come Alone, My Journey Behind the Lines of Jihad. All right, listeners, stay with us. Coming up, we mark another very different anniversary. 20 years since one of Mariah Carey's biggest flops. An album called Glitter. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Monday.com. If you're drowning in work instead of steering the ship, you know there's got to be a better way. With Monday.com Work OS, your team can choose how your workflow looks. That way you can stay on top of your work and say goodbye to work overload. Over 125,000 customers get more out of their workday with Monday.com. So if you want your team to be more effective than ever, visit monday.com slash podcast for your free two-week trial. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. We are going to take a bit of a turn now and talk about a thing that is only a bit related to 9-11. It's not about national politics or the war on terror. It's about an album that was released on September 11th, 2001. An album that everyone agrees was a complete and total flop. Mariah Carey's soundtrack to her not-that-good movie, Glitter. It's not a musical, but it's integrating music with film, and it's something I wanted to do for like three and a half years. Now, this is not about 9-11, but the story does start there. In the morning of, I was heading to school early um, Mm -hmm. to purposely stop off at the World Trade Center to purchase the Glitter album. That's Danielle Turciano. She's now a senior features editor at Variety. But when Glitter came out, she was a senior at Stuyvesant High School in New York. And she was a huge Mariah Carey fan. I wanted to get that first and then be able to like listen to it in between yeah. classes and at lunch and everything. That didn't happen. I was I was in the, the it was borders at the time. And so the borders in the World Trade Center, you're there. Right. Around yes. what time in the morning, yeah. you think? Uh, It was definitely 8.45, and then um, I was in line to pay, and the first plane hit the building. Did you feel anything? Yeah, the building shook. I mean, like, the the lights blinked, the computers blinked, and and security just came through and said, everybody out. So you didn't get your album with you? I did not get my album with me. What I thought was going to be a routine errand turned into quite a crazy morning. Danielle called her mom, and her mom was like, just go to school. It's only a few blocks away. But when she got there... She didn't stay for long. The minute the tower started to fall, they unlocked everything and they said, get out, walk as far uptown as you can. We don't know what's happening, but we know we're going to be in that cloud. And we also don't know if the building will go left or go right or just come straight down. So that day, high school senior Danielle walked miles north through Manhattan. She didn't get back home to Brooklyn until very late. Did you ever end up getting your Mariah Carey Glitter album that week? How long did it take you to get it? I did. So my mother, who felt so guilty after she, like, yelled at me to go to school, um, went out and got it for me. (laughs) 
Mariah Carey and her team had no idea that that album drop would coincide with one of the most horrible days in American history. And it was only bad luck that brought Danielle to the World Trade Center that morning to try and fail to buy it. But the story of Glitter is bigger than just Mariah and Danielle's very bad luck. Glitter. And hear me out here. Glitter is a perfect lens to examine some of the ways music and fandom and pop culture have changed since 9-11. Let's go back to late 2000, early 2001, before Glitter, after Mariah Carey has just dominated the 90s. What kind of star was she then, in that moment, like 2000? In 2000, I would say that Mariah Carey was at the top of her game. That is Paula Mejia. She's a senior editor at Texas Monthly. I mean, I really can't think of anybody who dominated culture in that way that Mariah Carey did back then. Between 1990 and 2000, Mariah Carey had 15 number one hits. A number one song in every year that decade, except one. It's always been my dream, and it's incredible to be able to have the success, and I just want to continue going. And every album she released in that decade, it went multi-platinum. I remember this time, she was unstoppable. And the Grammy goes to Mariah Carey! Once again, ladies and gentlemen, the winner of Billboard's special Hot 100 award for having the most hits for any female in history, Miss Mariah Carey. Riding that wave, Mariah signed a multi-album contract with Virgin Records right at the turn of the millennium. It is estimated that that contract was worth close to $100 million. Glitter, the movie and the soundtrack, that was going to be her first big project from that deal. And Glitter would be her first starring film role. Glitter was basically like A Star is Born, but loosely based on Mariah Carey's own rise to fame. Here's Paula again. She gets discovered and, you know, has brushes with unsavory people in the music industry, but... Her talent just propels her to the top. You have got a beautiful voice. You can't let Timothy use the best of you. Well, what makes you think that's the best of me? Is Mariah's nemesis in this movie? A very bad singing Padma Lakshmi. I think that Glitter was supposed to be the jewel in the crown of her... Uh, her new deal um, and coming into this new millennium with Virgin. And I think it was incredibly surprising to everybody when it was not. The movie Glitter had a budget of $22 million and it only made about $5 million at the box office. And the album didn't do too well either. Again, the album's debut on 9-11, that did hurt sales. But it wasn't the only reason. She had been on this publicity blitz for probably 10 years nonstop. And I think at, at that point, she, she just hit a wall. In July of 2001, Mariah Carey went on Total Request Live. For those who don't know, that was an MTV music video countdown show. She was there to promote Glitter. Ja Rule, you got J-Lo, and that was uh, I'm Real love Remix. Love boy, with... come on and love me. How's that? Give me more. Um, uh, what? <laughs> Mariah me, Carey. Me. So she comes on the show with this ice cream cart to surprise the host, Carson Daly. But Carson, he did not really play nice. Well, we like this. Mariah um, Carey's okay. lost her mind. I don't, I don't know exactly what's going on here. I was going to commercial break. <laughs> wait, uh, Carson, out of the other wait, wait, video, wait. and it's I hear her singing. You brought ice cream. Look at the ice cream truck. I Mariah declined to be interviewed for this story, but she's talked about that TRL appearance in the years since. 
it was a stunt gone awry, as we say. It was not like, oh my God. And by today's standards, it's like nothing. It wouldn't even get picked up in one place. And honestly, that seems true. Looking back, she does seem a bit flustered, but otherwise normal and peppy. But Carson called her crazy, and the media latched on. All of a sudden, this TRL appearance, it became a breakdown. Later, she talked about how at the time she was dealing with exhaustion, she had to be hospitalized, and she was actually diagnosed with bipolar disorder back then, something that she had a hard time dealing with, I think, in addition to everything that was going on. It is hard to overstate just how different the launch of Glitter was from every other album Mariah had released before. It is a colossal flop. I mean, commercially, it does terribly. Critically, it's panned across the board. There was really very little that was said about this film and the soundtrack that was positive. Coming up, we'll hear how fans sent that Mariah Carey album to the top of the charts years later and demanded, quote, justice for glitter. This message comes from NPR sponsor Lincoln Financial. Pursuing your dreams starts with financial security. Lincoln can help you get started, whether it's protecting you and your family from life's unexpected events or planning for retirement. Lincoln can help you enjoy today while staying on track for tomorrow. Visit lfg.com slash get started to discover how Lincoln Financial Solutions can help you plan, protect, and retire. Lincoln Financial is the marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and Affiliates. Copyright 2021. Glitter does not sparkle. The world moves on. And Mariah Carey, her career takes a few years to recover. But everyone, including Mariah, tried to forget about glitter. Flash forward, though, 17 years, and then everything changes for that album with the Justice for Glitter campaign. What was that? The Justice for Glitter campaign, in late 2018, a group of Mariah Carey fans, which it should be noted, call themselves the Lamely because Mariah Carey refers to her fans as lambs uh, and her leading the flock, our glittering shepherd. So they come together on Twitter and decide that glitter has been maligned for far too long. And so they mobilize to get Glitter to number one on the iTunes album charts. And the way that they do this is someone put together, someone who's a massive Mariah Carey fan puts together this very elaborate listening schedule of all the Mariah Carey albums so that people can get, you know, really in the groove before they start listening to Glitter all the time. And through that, it started picking up steam Mariah Carey tweets about it, and then it goes to number one. They put the Glitter soundtrack back in the top ten. I can't believe it. Uh, Hashtag justice for glitter. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Thank you, Lamely. Lamely. The thing that's really interesting about this is that it, it wasn't the anniversary of this album. It was just it just happened very organically over Twitter because her fan base decided that it was time for people to be able to hear something that she had really tried to bury for a long time and that in the cultural consciousness wasn't as well known as anything else that she had done. Well, and, you know, the reason I find the story of Glitter so interesting because it shows how much Mariah has remained important even as the music industry has changed and she's still been able 
to come out on top in many ways in spite of all the changes and how much the Internet changed what it means to make a hit. You know, when Mariah Carey was walking into her glitter phase, there was a very surefire way to guarantee a number one album and a number one song. It was a formula that was filtered through record labels and executives who knew how to do this. Flash forward, the way to get a number one album is entirely different. Like, what does the story of Glitter say about just how much the music industry has changed, period? I think it says a lot. So I think that in the early 2000s, we were just starting to see... um, the paradigms of the music industry changed completely because that's when Napster and other file sharing services started to pick up and gain a lot more momentum. And that changed the way that people value music so dramatically because I remember being a kid and it cost $18 to buy a CD. <laughs> and now it's it's almost unimaginable to think that that wasn't that long ago because now people have the expectation that music is going to be on demand and you can listen to it for free, maybe with some ads. But that that was just picking up steam around then. I don't think that that would have necessarily affected glitter sales right at that time. But in the ensuing years, we saw the iPod come out. We saw people starting to purchase music digitally. Then we started seeing the influx of streaming services. At the same time, the paradigms of fandom started to change. So back then, I mean, I I think it's very charming that Mariah Carey used to leave voice messages for her fans and call them lambs and be like, hey, lamb, like, thanks for supporting my album. Thank you so much for all your support, everybody I know who kept calling and emailing and doing all that. I love you and I really appreciate you and beyond enjoy you. All right. (laughs) Thanks. But now people can engage with their fans, acknowledging them on Twitter or Instagram or something like that. But also fans have a lot more sway now. Um, It's something where people aren't just lining up outside the Disney store because something is coming out that they're interested in. Like they have real power and capital to sway algorithms and to sway sales. And I think that artists and record companies alike know that. And I think that's what's prompting this different kind of relationship between fans and creators. But also, Glitter is perhaps the biggest example of the magnitude of which, like, pop would change as well. You know, Mariah Carey was making glittery bubblegum pop R&B for years. And then the national mood changed and music changed after 9-11. And if you hear her albums after that, even the ones that were more successful, the sound of them was different too. It's true. I think that overnight, the appetite for anything that was even remotely, I guess, decadent is a good way to phrase it. Just, I I think that that really soured in people's minds. And understandably, everyone was reeling. People were just so unsure of the future. And I think that the idea of having be so something so glittery and just so different than what the national mood was capturing felt off and it wasn't her fault. I mean, how were you going to know that that was going to happen? I think yeah, it was just yeah. unfortunate timing wise. What I also see in the story of Mariah and Glitter and Justice for Glitter and the rebound of this flop really is a way in which what we think is good or bad changes over time. 
mm-hmm. and the ways in which music fandom in the age of streaming is inherently different, which we've alluded to already. If I think of the Lamely now and how it really just kind of cares for Mariah um, and her entire discography because they have access to all of it on demand whenever they want, it's a respect for her. It matters less whether Glitter was good or bad. It matters that Glitter is there mm-hmm. and that you can support it. And if you're her true fan, you should. If you love her, you support her, right? And that kind of fandom, it is all-encompassing because it's all there all the time. Yeah. All the content's always there all the time. Danielle Turciano is the perfect example of that kind of fan. She's the one from earlier who tried to buy the Glitter album in the World Trade Center on 9-11. I have this USB drive for my car because I'm too old to use Bluetooth. And it's literally just called The Evolution of Mariah Carey. And it's every album in chronological order. She only began doing that recently, though. For years, she really didn't want to think about her experience with Glitter or talk about it with anyone. You just don't want to be like tied to a tragedy that you had nothing to do with. And so now, like 20 years later, I'm kind of sitting with it very differently. She even wrote a piece about her 9-11 experience and its connection to Glitter. Turns out that album became a comfort to her in the weeks after the attack. Particularly one song, this ballad called Never Too Far. So I hold it in till my heart can so lyrically, there's there's a lot of loss and talking about trauma and healing and um, saying goodbye. And so, you know, to me, listening to that song after witnessing what I just witnessed was like an emotional breakdown moment. Never too far away. I do feel, you know, as we are coming into this 20th anniversary of, of September 11th and therefore 20th anniversary of this album, like take a second listen, you know, of the song because you might not have made the, the connection I made. And I'm curious if people with a little bit of time and distance see, see that resonance. Danielle says she is glad that fans have begun to reevaluate Glitter so many years later. The way we like look back on stuff because of, these things that we're, we're experiencing around them yeah. adds the weight to the art itself, which is kind of the point of art. But at the same time, it just means that some things take a little bit more time to grow. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, the big lesson with like glitter and honestly, if we're getting even more meta here with grief and terror, it's like sometimes it all just takes time. It takes time. It takes time to get over this hard stuff. It takes time to appreciate a work sometimes longer than the moment that you first experience it in. And I don't know. I'm not going to say that Glitter is my favorite album, but I am going to say that the arc of Glitter and Mariah and her fans, I think it's beautiful. And I think it's a testament to the power of time. Yeah. We're in a different era. And and that means that, you know, we're celebrating it in a different way. Thanks again to Danielle Turciano and Paula Mejia. You can find their respective work at Variety and Texas Monthly. And thanks to Liam McBain, who produced this entire segment. And of course, per always, thank you, Mariah Carey. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag, and they do. 
Let's hear a few of those submissions. Hi, Sam. This is Nina in San Bruno. And the best part of my week was when my mom lost a ping pong game to my sister. And you'd think she'd lost an Olympic medal. Voices were raised. Tears may have been shed, but we all laughed at the end of it. It was just so funny. The best part of my week was my girlfriend, who lives in Nova Scotia, coming to stay with me for a week after only being able to chat on Facebook for a year and a half. We had soul food in Oakland, dim sum in San Francisco, and now I know for sure that I won't be alone the rest of my life as I plan on moving to Canada in 2023. Hi Sam, this is Sean in Austin. I just got back from a road trip with my dad. We drove from Central Texas to Engineer Pass, just north of Durango, Colorado, to fulfill my mom's last wishes. To have her ashes spread on Engineer Mountain. She passed away suddenly in March this year, and it has been a real challenge, but this road trip helped us both a lot. Hi, this is Betty from Delaware. I'm grateful to be recovering from total knee replacement surgery this week and doing well. I'm really grateful for the excellent medical staff and the physical therapist. Grateful for my family coming from the West Coast to take care of me. Thank you so much. And I'm grateful for my friends and loved ones here in Delaware who've just extended themselves to make sure that I had everything that I needed. Hi, Sam. This is Katie Kirchannon. I'm a music teacher in Greenville, South Carolina. And the best part of my week was receiving the following music assignment submission from second grader Sam. She collaborated with her dad Sid on this and made a rocking version of our song, Our Class is a Family. Thanks to all those listeners you just heard. Nina, Scott, Sean, Katie, Sam, and Betty from Delaware, who was actually my Aunt Betty, my dear Aunt Betty, who uh, just had a knee replacement surgery. She has done wonderfully. She was walking the same day of the procedure, and I'm watching her just recover in real time, and it's a beautiful thing. I want to say thank you to Betty for her perseverance. Thank you to all the medical professionals who've been helping her out. And thanks to all the people in Delaware making good public radio for me to hear while I'm up here in Dover. I appreciate all of you. Listeners, don't forget you can share the best part of your week at any time throughout any week. Yes, we still love to hear from you. Just record yourself and send a voice memo to samsanders at npr.org. That's samsanders at npr.org. All right, this week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Janae West, Anjali Sastry, Andrea Gutierrez, and Liam McBain. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman, and our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. Listeners, till next time, be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon. <laughs>